Good morning, folks. Uh, my name is Jared Monshine. I am the Director of Research here at the U.S. Study Center, as well as Director of the Politics, Society, and Culture uh, Program here at the United States Study Center. But before we begin, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands in the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country in which you are on and pay respect to their elders past, present, and future. So in a few hours, President Biden uh, will make his State of the Union address, commonly known in the wonky world as so too. You might see that in a few places here and there on Twitter and whatnot. And it will be addressed to a joint session of Congress in his first appearance before the newly elected Republican-controlled House of Representatives. It's This is directed by the U.S. Constitution that the sitting uh, U.S. President must deliver to Congress information on the State of the Union. Um, it, it, until uh, just in the last century, that became a verbal communication to Congress. And here we are today where it's an annual event and, and uh, it's really exciting. So less of a report card, the, the annual message was as basically an opportunity for the President to tout their accomplishments and rally support for the policy agenda for the year ahead. Today, joining us, we have uh, two experts at the U.S. Study Center. We have Associate Professor David Smith. He's jointly appointed between the U.S. Study Center and the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Sydney. And his research examines the political relations between states and minorities with a focus on religion in the United States. Um, and his book, Religious Persecution and Political Order in the United States, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. We also have Victoria Cooper, she is a research associate at the United States Study Center in the Politics, Society, and Culture Program. And her research focuses on explaining U.S. domestic politics and political trends to an Australian audience and mapping Australian perspectives on the U.S. and the U.S.-Australian relationship. Before joining the center, Victoria worked as a researcher and publisher in a variety of nonprofits in policy and law reform and was a student at the University of Sydney. So thanks so much, everyone, for joining us today. I wanted to kick off in this conversation, firstly, by asking, I'll, I'll go to David first, what is the State of the Union? This is something you hear a lot, like, what is the State of the Union? You might hear a CNN show where they ask that, and every, every time they have a new answer. But I'd love to hear from David and then Victoria, what is the, the State of the Union that, that we're seeing today? Hmm. Well, it's become a kind of a cliche to suggest that there's really not much of a union anymore, that the country is so divided that people are living in their own little informational worlds, that because of the way that the social divisions now coincide with geographic divisions, that Americans are further apart from each other than ever. But also what we're seeing is that every political issue um, becomes nationalised in the United States. So we saw this particularly last year with regards to abortion. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, theoretically what was going to happen was that this would now mean that all states now have the right to make their own abortion laws. Now, this did happen, but also at the same time, we see the issue becoming more nationalised than ever. And this was always going to happen because the laws that 
occur in one state affect people in other states. And, you know, when states start making laws about trying to restrict people from travelling outside their state or importing abortifacient uh, uh, drugs from other states, um, you can see how this is going to become nationalised very quickly. That happens with every issue that is nominally um, in the control of the states, everything from educational curriculum to gun control. The fact is, Americans can't escape the fact that the United States is a country. Um, as, as much as there are these forces pulling Americans apart socially, there are equally powerful forces um, forcing them together politically. And that's the uh, that's really been the defining dynamic, I would say, of about the last 20 years of American politics. Thanks for that, David. And Victoria, we'd love to hear your take. Yeah, I think um, in terms of the State of the Union and this address in particular, it's going to come from Biden's perspective. And I was trying to think of a fun way to describe how Biden is going to go about this. And I think it's just like it's it's absolutely everything and absolutely nothing all at once. It's like Katy Perry's hot and cold. It's like a little bit of everything. And that Biden is going to say that everything is going really well. And he has reasons to say that. He's passed major legislative reforms in the last two years. He's accomplished a lot of his agenda. He survived a midterms red wave that didn't eventuate. You know, he has a lot of reasons to celebrate. And even though his approval rating is still low at the moment, it's still in its low uh, 40s, it's higher than it was last year. So he's doing that little bit better. But at the same time, uh, a lot of Americans aren't going to concur with Biden's perspective, whether that uh, and that's coming from both Democrat and Republican voters. Uh, people are particularly concerned about the economy. They're concerned about crime. Um, you know, some of the recent context around um, Ty and Nichols is also raising some issues that Biden hasn't addressed, like um, police reform and, um, you know, and clamping down on gun control, which is also, you know, as David was saying, it's state provided. So, I think there's a lot of, uh, yeah, everything and nothing at the same time. It's going to be interesting to see what balance Biden strikes uh, in this speech and how he both celebrates, uh, you know, some of these achievements and appeals to some of the wants and the things undone by his administration so far. So I, I can't quite determine what the State of the Union is at the moment. It's a little bit of everything. That's a great point. I mean, it seems like uh, from inflation being a bit down but still remaining high, or the best job numbers that America's had in decades. Um, but then you have those two facts, but then you have also the American sentiment and, and polling showing that America is pretty down on where America is, as, as David was saying, trying to escape the fact that they are a country. I'd love to hear, David, how you think um, President Biden has navigated those tensions. I mean, he was supposed to be a guy that was the, the steady pair of hands who could work across the aisle, who'd been in, in Washington for almost half a century and, and could get things done. And, and Victoria flag, uh, flagged some of the, the things that he has gotten done, but do you think it has made a difference? And how, how do you see that going forward in terms of trying, are there, going, are there successes to be had going forward? Can he you know, change things around and make Americans optimistic again? I think he'd be facing an uphill battle to do that. I mean, every president who comes in promises that they're going to be a uniting force after years of division. Uh, Obama promised that not only politically, but in terms of the racial divisions in the United States. Even Trump in his uh, uh, election night victory speech said that he was going to govern for people who hadn't voted for him. Um, that didn't really happen. But what we actually saw with Biden was that in the first few months of his presidency, 
he was not really seeking bipartisanship at all. Uh, in the, actually, in those first few months, he was very much pushing democratic policy priorities while he could, because he knew that that was the, uh, you know, that was the window that he had to do it. Now that that window shut, as it did after about 100 days, it's been after that point that he has and to try to get some, um, you know, some more bipartisan deal deal making happening. There have been a couple of instances of that happening. Actually, a couple of surprising instances of that happening. We have seen um, recently around the dignity of marriage legislation. Uh, we've also seen around something pretty important, which is the Electoral Count Act. Um, that that is going to get reformed uh, with bipartisan cooperation, um, but. On a lot of the big issues, we're not seeing that, but I, I just don't think that you can expect Biden to work the kinds of miracles uh, that, that would be required uh, to get bipartisanship in this, this situation. Um, we are in a very long period of gridlock in American politics with occasional exceptions to it. Um, the reason for that is the way that American political institutions were designed. There is not supposed to be, or at least it's supposed to be very difficult to pass, major legislation in the United States without a degree of consensus because of the number of veto points in the system. And because there's been so much dissensus, which is, this, this is not just a feeling that people have, this is something that is very measurable when you look at the way, for example, that Congress has been voting uh, over the last 30 years, where there's been far more party line voting than normal, to the extent that it now looks almost like a kind of Westminster system with the degree of party discipline involved. And also because of a very long kind of historical pattern, especially of Southern Democrats disappearing and to some, to some extent Northern Republicans disappearing, uh, we now see that there's very little or no ideological overlap between the parties in Congress. So these factors putting pushing the parties apart, they are historical factors that have been at work for as long as Biden has been in Congress. And, you know, at, at this point, towards the end of Biden's career, we don't know how long away that end is, but it's, you know, he's not going to be able to fix that now. And Victoria, would love to hear your thoughts on maybe what you would, as someone who, who knows what's what's going on domestically in the U.S., what would you maybe recommend to President Biden to have in his State of the Union, given what, what David's saying and what you were saying about where, where um, the U.S. is right now and just how things are, seem to be trending in one uh, negative direction? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think one of the words that's been thrown around about this speech and what's expected is that Biden is going to, you know, push for unity again. That's kind of his slogan. He calls himself a uniter in chief. And as David was saying, there's a lot of obstacles there in terms of actually being able to, you know, unite a divided Congress. And it really is divided now. We have Democrats in the Senate and a Republican majority in the House. And, it, you know, with slim margins as well, that Republican Party is also looking fractious from within and they can't entirely agree what their legislation is going to be aside from, you know, holding Joe Biden accountable. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be difficult for him moving forward. And I think one of the exceptions to this, uh, you know, fracture, one of the bipartisan pieces of legislation that passed last year was the Chips and Science Act. And that is, you know, historic investments in research and development in America. And one of the impetuses for that, one of the reasons that has such bipartisan support is that it is overtly and, uh, you know, a, a 
competition with China bill um, that was originally termed, a, you know, keeping competitive with China. And so um, that's kind of a coalescing factor here. Um, and so, you know, now that that has passed, it's going to be interesting to see how else they can push, you know, the needle forward on initiatives that the Biden administration wants while trying to package it as competitiveness with China. We saw them do that with the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, that was a way to try and garner some report uh, support from the right um, around, you know, things like climate initiatives was to frame it as we can compete better with China um, if we are to pass this and, you know, if we are to make those domestic investments. So I, it's going to be interesting to see if they can push further with that. And I think this um, balloon incident in recent times has been <laughs> posing an additional challenge to that. But I suppose, um, you know, if I was to tell Biden to highlight something, um, you know, I reckon Americans need to feel good about themselves. It's, you know, but you started this by saying make America optimistic again. I don't know if Biden can quite do that, but I don't think we've seen pessimism coming from Americans um, in the way that we have at the moment. I mean, our own polling shows that Americans are more pessimistic about the status of their country than Australians are. And that's really unusual. Normally, Americans see themselves as this shining city on a hill. And that has been, you know, there's, it's been kneecapped in recent times. And so I think Biden needs to give Americans reasons to be proud and reasons to be then uh, to come together. Um, and he's going to do that by trying to, again, emphasize that point of unity and the things that do draw them together. That's a great point about the, the balloon and, and the foreign policy and how generally after midterms and uh, uh, first midterms, a president can only really do so much at home because they usually lose control of Congress. So I guess that's that's a question uh, to, to you, David, in terms of foreign policy, you know, if, if Biden can't pass any legislation at home, what do you think um, are his foreign policy priorities? And also maybe what is he going to flag in the say the union? as his foreign policy priorities. Um, some in Australia may uh, want to know, it, does AUKUS get a mention uh, in a few hours? I very much doubt that AUKUS is going to get a mention. Um, it's one of these things that gets talked about a lot more here uh, than, than it does there, but maybe I'll be wrong. Um, yeah, to go back to Victoria's very good point, competition or confrontation with China is one of the, the most or the most consensus area of American politics. This is a very strong area of continuity from Trump to Biden in terms of the foreign policy. It's been done a very different way in the Biden administration. With Biden, it is more of a return to speak softly and carry a big stick. Uh, that was not Trump's approach. With Trump's approach, every moment of confrontation with China was really uh, talked about a lot, talked about a lot by Trump. Um, Biden doesn't do it so much that way. So last year when the United States passed these incredibly restrictive measures on uh, chips to China, so to the extent of actually bringing Americans back from China, so <laughs> saying, you know, if you're an American permanent resident, you've got to choose between uh, working in China and being an American permanent resident. Um, all of these measures actually much harsher than anything that Trump had done, really aimed at crippling the Chinese tech sector. Biden didn't even talk about it, right? Had, had Trump been doing something like that, it would have been talked about um, a lot because Biden didn't talk about it. It meant it also meant that there wasn't a high level Chinese response to it. That's a 
strategic, I mean, that's a strategic thing. Um, Biden is trying to put pressure on China without forcing them to respond publicly in order to create more space for uh, more space for quiet diplomacy. Um, something, yeah, when we've seen the, the balloon going over, the, the Chinese response to the United States shooting the balloon down has been relatively subdued by the standards of US-China interactions um, over the last few years. So there has been an attempt to kind of take the heat out of the rhetoric while both sides acknowledge that there's been almost no movement on the um, on the substantive issues they're talking about. Now, just because of the fact that you know Biden is currently pursuing an approach to China that really has pretty bipartisan backing and the support of the majority of the country, that doesn't mean that this is a unifying factor in the United States. Instead, what we're seeing is Republicans accusing Biden of, in Trump's words, surrendering American airspace to communist China, in the words of some of Trump's uh, media allies, being a Chinese communist agent or being bought and paid for uh, you know, by, by China. Republicans in Congress are basically making a lot of noise, suggesting that Biden is continually betraying the United States to the Chinese. So even looking at this area of pretty much bipartisan consensus, it doesn't mean that it's a unifying area within American politics. If anything, it's being taken as an opportunity for more division. And do you, in the, the our CEO, who unfortunately wasn't able to, to join us today due to a last minute scheduling um, uh, challenge, he, he likes to say that in Congress, there is actually more unity on Asia and the US approach to Asia, or has been up to this point, um, and uh, in terms of how the U.S. should approach Asia and work with allies and and, and so forth, but are you are do you both of you? I guess maybe we can start with Victoria. Do you see the the balloon? And it feels like a joke to say this, but do you see the balloon as a as a pivot point where it really is, as as David said, a, a sort of a wedge issue? Because looking looking at at from my perspective, I could see that it was almost like a Rorschach test where everyone had different takes on on the significance of the balloon, and um, it really does feel like a West Wing episode. But yeah, Victoria, would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a little bit hard to get past the comedy of this all coming down to a balloon, but um, feels a bit juvenile and childish. But I think in terms of um, you know, the, what David was saying about the approach to China's, you know, continued from the Trump to the Biden administration. And I think part of that is that that has a lot of resonance with the American public. It's bipartisan, not only among lawmakers, but also among voters. Um, everyone is concerned about China. Our own polling showed uh, a huge jump between 2020 and 2021 in terms of negative views towards China with um, unprecedented levels of Americans referring to China as an enemy, so much to the extent that we had to double check our numbers to make sure that the, we didn't accidentally make a mistake because the jump was that significant. And that view persists. Um, you know, And I think when we look at foreign policy, that's not only showed in concern for China, but also in support for allies. And, uh, you know, in terms of whether AUKUS will get a mention, I highly doubt it, but there is a growing support for Asian allies among um, the American public. Our polling from um, October last year showed that um, upward up from 44% the year before, now 58% of Americans think that uh, the alliance with Australia makes them more secure, which is really significant. Quite often Americans, and especially under the Trump administration, used to see alliances as a bit of a zero-sum game, as if that you know, having an alliance was a bit of a burden on America. But in this instance, we see Americans actually thinking that alliances make them safer. And again, I think that shows both concern for China as well as support for um, 
more alliances and Asian partners being more significant than ever. And if I can just pivot one more thing, I think in terms of foreign policy, what we saw under the Obama administration in his so-called fourth quarter was the, CP, uh, the passing of TPP. And um, I think there's a huge window of opportunity here for trade in terms of what Biden can do without the support of Congress. Um, and in terms of delivering uh, on something that is both beneficial to allies, as well as um, a measure that helps America compete better with China. In terms of, you know, drawing distinctions between the Trump and the Biden administration, their trade policy has been almost identical. In fact, you know, European allies are calling Biden administration just as protectionist as the Trump administration, especially considering some of those provisions in the Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, especially surrounding electric vehicles. So I think this is an area where Biden can, you know, continue to work with allies and reframe the trade agenda and distinguish himself from Trump at the same time. I think it's a bit of a home run, but, uh, you know, we'll see if the administration chooses to capitalize on that. That's a great point about, about trade and um, how it really has seemingly not diverged very much from the Trump administration whatsoever. Um, speaking of the Trump administration, uh, David, I'd love to, to know how you think a the, the Trump administration um, and the Biden administration have what you see as as substantial changes in the way that the the discourse has has happened i mean or, or is taking place in front of us is the political discourse just as toxic toxic now during this era of the biden administration has biden had any effect on sort of quieting the discourse there's there's some talk of the republicans they were initially going to go out with a press with a media um, frenzy about how Biden was was weak on the balloon, and they're going to have a press conference about it. But they decided not to do it in the end because um, because um, the, the McCarthy and Biden are, are trying to be nice to each other. Do you see any sort of silver lining to the the difference under the Biden administration in terms of getting some sort of um, uh, uh, peacefulness, I guess, for lack of a better word, between the the fracturing uh, political debate in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, the most obvious difference is that we don't have the president making erratic pronouncements every few minutes with no filter. That is a very significant uh, difference between the Biden and the, the Trump eras. I mean, a lot of discourse is affected by what is happening at the top. And during the Trump administration, it was Trump himself who was setting the tone for the whole country's political discourse. So everything is a little bit less chaotic and a little bit less uh, vicious now because of the fact that there's been this return to relative normality, at least in terms of the communications that are coming from the very top. Um, certainly Trump being kicked off Twitter for a couple of years, I think did it kind of changed the social media landscape um, a little bit now. I think... In retrospect, that was actually the beginning of the end of Twitter as we know it. Uh, when I mean, not not to say that Twitter is going to end, but its role has shifted pretty substantially, and I think will um, will continue to shift substantially. I think I'm also detecting just in in general, um, there was during those years of the Trump administration, there was something kind of addictive uh, about the chaos that a lot of people found, whether they were friends or enemies uh, of the president. But there's a degree of exhaustion that has kicked in since then, and people don't really want to go back to that. Now, you know, so we see now 
even with Trump being welcomed back onto Twitter and welcomed back onto Facebook, we're not going to see a reversion um, to, you know, to, to what it was back then. Um, so, yeah, I think that the discourse has shifted. Uh, yeah, it has shifted a little bit. It's not going to go back to, you know, what it was pre-Trump, but I don't think it's going to go back to what it was during Trump either. Mm, that's great. I'd love uh, your your take on on that, Victoria. Do you do you notice as as someone uh, uh, on the outside a, a change in in what we saw during the Trump administration to now? Yeah, I really like David's point about um, media and being able to garner media attention. Um, one of Trump's, I think, impressive feats is the way that he manages to summarize people um, in and like point out their flaws in the most, um, I suppose, slamming sort of way. Like he did it with Ron DeSantis with DeSanctimonious, just highlighting that one of DeSantis's biggest criticisms is his lack of charisma. And he just captured that really quickly. And for Biden, I wonder if maybe that's Sleepy Joe. Biden doesn't command the same sort of media presence as Trump did. And so that's becoming a bit of a messaging issue when it comes to celebrating some of these achievements, but it's not quite getting the same attention that Trump seemed to have. And throughout, you know, the midterm elections throughout the State of the Union speech, basically throughout the first two years of Biden's administration, Trump has been lingering in the background, taking up a lot of the oxygen and a lot of this like airtime um, away from Biden. And it's a real claw for him to try and scrape away some of that attention and to highlight some of the good things that he's doing and draw those distinctions to his predecessor. And so I suppose there is a resumption to normality, as Biden would like to say, that he's, you know, bringing and restoring the US back to, you know, a, a sense of dignity and normality and predictability. Um, and in many ways, he's doing that. But in some ways, that, that means that people aren't looking to the presidency anymore in the way that they were and not following it in the way that they were under Trump. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Americans are exhausted as as someone that has to uh, discuss American politics. I have been exhausted by the endless news cycles and the and, and the tweets. And regardless of, of your view of it, it was just overwhelming. Um, I guess my to follow up on that, like, are Americans just looking to turn a page on the whole is is the way out of this mess a new candidate entirely and i guess that that gets to the 2024 question and um is is this i, I think there's there's something said about maybe an opportunity um about uh, for a republican maybe i think something someone like tim scott to stand out from the fray he did not reject trump entirely he did not um embrace trump entirely but he sort of navigated balanced that and he and he's not seen in the eyes of the public as as someone that's maybe tainted by trump one way or the other you, i i think there there might be an opportunity in 2024 for the republican party to turn a new page do you do you see that coming in the republican party um david and victoria i'll start with you david I think that the Republicans have had a lot of opportunities that they haven't taken to uh, turn the page and they're not going to take the opportunity that you have uh, suggested. Polling suggests that uh, either Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, depending on which poll you see, and the polling on that is very, very erratic, but those are the two who are consistently um, at the top. Nobody else is really anywhere near within range um, of those two. Now, a lot can happen between now and the end of the year when the, the primaries seriously uh, get underway. I think Tim Scott is the fantasy candidate 
for the five or ten percent of Republicans who would absolutely refuse to vote for Trump or for people like Mehmet Oz and Carrie Lake. You know, so a significant slice of the Republican electorate in terms of determining election outcomes, but not enough to uh, to swing a Republican primary. He's also the fantasy Republican candidate of Democrats and others who would love to see a wholesale change. Um, in Republican Party. And I would say he is respected in the Republican base, but he's not uh, he's not going to fire up the Republican base in the same way that Trump or DeSantis can. So um, I do not see Republicans taking that opportunity. This is despite the fact that there's been yet another poll released showing that the majority of Americans don't want either Trump or Biden uh, as the uh, as as the candidate. But it it's harder to move on from that than just following public opinion. Yeah, the, the endless questions about um, who's going to run in 2024. And one, one thing to, to keep in mind is if it's likely Biden, which it looks to be pretty likely, and if it ends up being Trump, Biden has a great quote saying, uh, don't compare me to the uh, Lord Almighty, compare me to the other guy. And it looks like I think if 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 it is Biden versus Trump again, um, that Biden stands a chance. But that obviously changes if if they have a uh, different candidates. But yeah, Victoria would love your take on the Republican Party and wh- where you see it shifting. It, it seems like we've been saying um, having a bit of a, in my opinion, a bit of a uh, identity crisis about like who even is a uh, mainstream Republican anymore. It's it's sort of hard to hard to define what that what that is. But would love your take. Yeah, totally. I think the Republican Party is doing a, a you know, a self-evaluation trying to say it's lost three re- elections in a row with this midterm election just gone past. And especially it's really embarrassing for some of those members of the Republican Party who were so determined that there was going to be a red wave and then there just wasn't. At one point, Kevin McCarthy said, you know, we'll pick up 60 seats and that just didn't eventuate. And so there is a real autopsy of looking at within the party and seeing what they could do differently. One of the things was that Republicans said they were too backwards looking, that part of their midterms campaign looked too much at 2020. And that kind of hinted that maybe they were trying to shake off some of the, you know, Trump presidential election denying that happened uh, two years ago. But at the same time, they're very reluctant to leave it behind. Ron McDaniel just got reinstated as the Republican National Committee chair, um, despite overseeing multiple of these lost elections. And as much as the Republican Party does want to shake off Trump, in some instances, it's still a bit of a winning strategy. If we look to the um, midterm nominees uh, in their primaries, 93% of Trump-endorsed candidates won their primaries. They might not have gone on to win the general election, and there's multiple factors that went into that, um, you know, some of it being name recognition, some of it being, um, you know, abortion-motivating Democrat voters to come out to vote. But nonetheless, when it came to electing those candidates, 93% of the time, if Trump gave them his gold star, they went on to become the nominee. And so at the moment, no other Republican has put their name in the ring to go forward in 2024. And so Trump is seemingly the only one we've got. His comeback so far has been underwhelming. He had uh, only 4,000 people turn out to his New Hampshire speech, uh, which is incredibly underwhelming considering the numbers that he used to draw out or, you know, alleged to draw out in 2016 and 2020. Um, But at this point, he doesn't have anyone to run against. And I think that's when his campaigns really gain a lot of oxygen is when he has someone to put down and compare himself to. And so that's a real challenge for whichever Republican wants to put themselves forward, whether that's Tim Scott, whether that's Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, who seems to be, um, you know, alluding to a run very soon. It's a it's a precarious position to put themselves in because Trump, you know, will use that point of comparison to propel himself forward. So I don't think the Republican Party is yet ready to shake off Trump. And what that means going forward, I think will become clear in the next two years. 
Thanks for that, Victoria. Um, and in terms of you, you mentioned the election denial and how and 93% of the Trump-back candidates won, um, and so many of those candidates engaged in election denial. But I guess, from my perspective, it seemed like Kerry Lake in Arizona was sort of the, the chief uh, uh, one who lost and then and protested that. Do you, but some some have said that maybe most of that election denial is in the past and that it was sort of ephemeral, similar to how the Democrats, a lot of Democrats, denied the outcome of the 2016 election that, that elected Donald Trump. Do you see, David, um, election denial as something that is going to be uh, integral to or, or a part of every U.S. election going forward? Or do you, do you see it more as just it will rise and flow depending on who the candidates are? Yeah, it's very hard to tell. So Trump is clearly not prepared to leave it behind. He had one speech to launch his campaign where he kind of didn't mention it directly, but since then he's gone back to talking about it all the time. As long as Trump is around, uh, he's going to be talking about it, and so there will be other people who are talking about it. Um, I think that in general, people have seen that it's not a winning strategy electorally, so that is going to scare a lot of people off it. I was very interested to see how the election denial played out, not only in Arizona, but also in Brazil. In both cases, they did, neither Bolsonaro nor Carrie Lake did what Trump did, which was to begin the contestation on the night um, of, of the election. So both of them actually waited a long time um, or a relatively long time before they kind of started up the contestation. And by the time they did, there was, you know, they had lost any kind of momentum behind it. I mean, Bolsonaro still managed to get supporters out in uh, in Brazil to, uh, to trash the legislature and the court, but there wasn't any chance of that actually affecting the, um, the election outcome. So we might be seeing denialism peter out just because political elites recognise that it's not a winning strategy, um, albeit there are plenty of non-winning strategies that uh, tend to have a long life. But um, I think that, the you know, the, the realities of 20, uh, 2022 have brought that home. But, you know, we'll see. Thanks for that, David. Um, so with with the sort of optimism that, that many don't have about America, what, what I find fascinating about uh joe joe biden in particular is the way that he has tried to cascade the that wing of the republic party as the MAGA republicans and how that that's been a, a big part of um the the way that he's tried to contrast himself with the republican party do you do you expect that from from uh the speech today victoria do you expect him to to try to uh, point a finger at those MAGA Republicans and bring up election denialism and, and try to provide that contrast that he has in recent in recent years? Yeah, I think that's it's a really important question to ask. I have a, I'm torn in terms of my answer. I think there's a couple of reasons that Biden 
would do it, uh, but uh, I'm probably leaning towards that he wouldn't because this isn't an election year, firstly. Um, last year, that was really useful in terms of riling up the Democratic base. And quite often, we actually saw that Democrats turned out to vote when the alternative um, to the Democrat candidate was a Republican who was a MAGA Republican, someone who represented the more far right version of Republicanism. Um, but and uh, but I yeah, I don't think it would be very wise for Biden to be calling out MAGA Republicans, especially because he's not trying to get anyone to the ballot box this year. Instead, he's just trying to move forward um, and not spark those divisions. I think I said before that one of the key words of this speech is unity, and I don't think that would do much in terms of achieving that unity. And one of the precarious debates that's happening at the moment that has really consequent, uh, you know, has significant consequences if it goes awry is about the debt ceiling. And that's where Biden is trying to cooperate with um, someone that he probably would have turned to MAGA Republican with Kevin McCarthy. He needs to be able to get the House to cooperate um, with him and to negotiate in order to pass um, an increase to the debt ceiling and in order to continue to move forward. And so I don't think it'll do him any favours to try and rile up the base in that sense and potentially politicise, um, you know, some of America's progress going forward. Yeah, um, David, you you wrote a piece, um, I think last year or the year before, about Republicans seeming to find their aversion to budget deficits whenever there's a Democrat in the White House, but not when there's a uh, Republican. Um, could you maybe just outline what you see, uh, what are the challenges with the debt ceiling? Why is that such a big deal in America and and, and how, you, how you see that playing out? Um, maybe it's hard to know how, how it plays out, but sort of the dynamics that Australians should maybe be aware of on that? Yeah, so for, I mean, for those who are not aware, um, since I think 1917, there has been a law that Congress can own, that the United States can only borrow a certain amount of money. And uh, to borrow more than that, Congress needs to raise the debt ceiling, which it routinely does. Every time that Congress raises the debt ceiling, there are always some protest votes against it. Like Barack Obama was a protest vote against uh, raising the debt ceiling in, I think, 2006. But those protest votes are usually fairly um, consciously with the knowledge that the debt ceiling is still going to be increased. Um, the debt ceiling was increased three times during the Trump administration with a minimum of democratic protest against it. One of the reasons why the debt ceiling is usually raised is because people are aware that if they get blamed for the United States defaulting on its debt, there's going to be hellish political consequences to pay. So the last time that there was a really serious standoff over the debt ceiling, which was in 2011, where the United States came within a few days of defaulting on debt and uh, Moody's and Standard & Poor's actually downgraded its credit rating for a while, Republicans really paid the political price for that in 2012. Um, last time that there was a showdown over um, the government being allowed to operate. So last time the government was shut down in 2018, that was a standoff between Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. That saw the lowest period of Donald Trump's approval ratings, down to about 36%. Um, so anyone that engages in these kinds of tactics that Republicans are doing now is taking a huge risk, not just with the economy, um, but with their own political fortunes as well. And my feeling is that Kevin McCarthy, if he was allowed to behave as a normal Speaker of the House, might be making some noises 
uh, about not wanting to to raise the debt ceiling, but he would get on and raise it because he doesn't want to pay the political price. But unfortunately, in order to get to that position as Speaker of the House, he had to make all of these uh, concessions to what Biden would call the ultra-MAGA flank of the party, including the fact that any one of them can at any moment call a snap vote on his leadership, uh, which if we remember how many votes it took him to get the leadership last time, he obviously doesn't want to go through that again. Um, so he's really being forced into this by his party as part of the price that he paid for actually getting the speakership of, uh, of the House of Representatives. And it's risky for the economy, but it is incredibly politically risky for the Republican Party as well. Part of the problem is that that's being driven by people in the Republican Party who themselves are never going to get to positions of leadership in the Republican Party. The Matt Gateses of the world are people who their, their major aim at this point is getting attention. It is getting as, as high as they can within the attention um, economy. And if that means engaging in a very politically damaging uh, standoff over the debt ceiling, that's what they're going to do. Most of these people represent districts where they're very unlikely to lose to a Democrat. What they've got to worry about is being primaried from the right flank. So they don't even care about the, you know, the, the political consequences of this, let alone the economic consequences of it. Thanks for that, David. That's really insightful and helpful to know the background on that. Um, I think one thing that the Republicans have made clear is, is as, as Victoria said, trying to um, provide oversight of the Biden administration and and their spending. And, and the Biden administration, I think President Biden will probably tell in a few hours his accomplishments that, that Victoria, you, you flagged earlier, whether it be the Inflation Reduction Act on, on climate change or science and chips, or, or whether it be on infrastructure. But could you maybe explain, Victoria, like, why were those significant? Why why do you think um, and why why are they relevant to Australia and um, and are they are they a change in America or is it, is it something that Australians should even pay attention to? I mean, this is going to be a big. I imagine that there'll be a lot of Republican nitpicking at, at aspects of this, similar to we all remember the Salinger scandal during the Obama administration, where where they handed money to a, a, a gave a sizable grant to a, um, a solar uh, panel company that then ended up going bankrupt. And, and, and the Republicans pointed to that a lot as as uh, as a uh, instance of the White House spending money that was just a waste. But um, I, I would love to hear what you think of, of these uh, major legislation, and that will probably be the target of some of that sort of deficit spending um, um, animus that you might see from the Republicans. Yeah, I think it's one of the components of the um, Republican criticism of you know these intense public spending or what they're calling reckless spending. Um, but what they're missing from that is that a lot of what the government or the Biden administration is investing in is actually bipartisan supported. And you refer there to the Chips and Science Act, as well as uh, several components of the Inflation Reduction Act. They're all components that were signed on to by both Democrats and Republicans, um, and that, that especially Republicans who um, are more hawkish on China. When it comes to chips and science, one of the finding 
Um, one of the biggest uh, investments is a $52 billion investment into chips manufacturing within the United States. That was a Trump administration talking point. It was also an Obama, Obama administration talking point that they need to return jobs and manufacturing and especially blue collar jobs to the United States to increase employment and to uh, you know, bolster the United States readiness should a, a, a warlike situation occur with China um, to reduce some of the dependencies on supply chains that lack resilience, especially when it comes to semiconductors and computer chips. And we saw some of those shortages in 2021. Um, you know, bringing home this manufacturing is a talking point on both sides. And that's what the Chips and Science Act uh, aimed to do with that $52 billion investment. Um, and the other part of that Chips and Science Act is investment in R&D, in research and development. And um, that's also a major component of the Inflation Reduction Act is an investment in research and development. And that is also, I suppose, not just targeting blue collar jobs, but also targeting um, opportunities for overseas visas for people who work um, in other countries. And that's possibly why, to answer the second part of your question, why Australians should be looking at these acts and seeing opportunities. Uh, Australia has a strong investment in its own uh, quantum intelligence, for example, in its own um, technology sector. And we have opportunities here to partner with a major um, company who is very technology, uh, sorry, country who is very technologically advanced. And there are opportunities there to work together in terms of trade and in terms of, you know, providing working visas to one another in order to support uh, supply chain resilience as we go forward. Um, and perhaps the point of difference here, and maybe one of the bones that the Republican Party has to pick is about the climate provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act was the biggest climate investment in the United States. Um, you know, Obama's investment was only $90 billion. Uh, Biden's investment was $770 billion. We're talking about a $31.4 trillion government debt. And in Biden's first year alone, his spending uh, was $3.5 trillion, which was equivalent to about Australia's GDP for that entire year. Like these are massive figures and massive investments in, pub in the public. People would argue that's needed. The Trump administration argued that that kind of level of investment was needed in the national security um, strategy in 2017. This isn't necessarily new news. And the fact that Biden has delivered on it, and especially in terms of infrastructure as well, that's something that every president has gone forward saying, I will invest in infrastructure. Biden has actually gone and done it. And so this is something that he should be celebrating and should be publicly advertising more. But it is also, I suppose, a lightning rod to criticism to both be celebrating this level of public spending while public spending is being criticized. So it's sort of a conundrum for him in this speech going forward. Thanks for that, Victoria. Yeah, the one thing that I found fascinating about the Obama administration, especially the reflections that so that officials within it have had afterwards, is talking about the messaging campaign and how they haven't, they weren't good enough at getting the message out about their accomplishments and, and whether it be the Affordable Care Act or the the um, the economic stimulus and, and keep people keeping their jobs or the economy not going, not facing a, another depression. Do you think, um, David, that that is a problem for the Democrats? Do you think that that the you know President Biden is going around the country right now trying to tout his infrastructure um, uh, investment, uh, uh, the legislation that he signed, and you know lots of photo ops in front of bridges and trains, you know Amtrak Joe, he just eats it all up. But do you think that this is somehow going to be more effective than what the Obama administration did in terms of touting their accomplishments and and, mo and moving the needle any bit on 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 being able to get some support for the legislation that they, they passed no I don't um I there's this real obsession with messaging 
among Democrats. If only the messaging were better. In reality, Democrat, Democratic Party political actors have very little control over this messaging. If you have a look at the American media landscape, there is not a lot that they can do to control the messaging. When there's a Republican administration, Republicans, I think, actually have a little bit more control over their messaging, uh, partly because of the fact that conservative media is a lot more likely to echo it. Um, but even, even they don't have a lot of control. But you will at least see, you know, during, during the Trump administration, the conservative media was constantly talking about how this was the greatest presidency of all time and the greatest economy of all time. Um, you know, the, there's just not really any equivalent uh, of that for the, um, for the Democratic Party. So I don't believe that Democrats actually have much control um, over that aspect at all. I, I don't think that there's very much that they can uh, that they can actually do about it. I think that the the obsession with uh, with messaging, it comes from political consultants, which is understandable because that's what political consultants are um, are paid to do. But I actually don't think that there is very much that that uh, that they can do about it. Always, always ever the optimist. <laughs> it, it really is a, a, a challenge. And I, I think I agree with you, David, that it does seem to be like a lot of political consultants that, that flag this, um, that opportunity more than anything else. Because unless you're actually following President Biden's schedule, you, I don't actually see any of the photo ops um, of him standing in front of a bridge. Uh, the only times I do, it seems to be when he's asked about something else, like whether he's asked about some other controversy in the administration. And, and yeah, it, it does uh, raise a question about whether there is a uh, consultant um, uh, bubble, economic bubble in, in D.C. and the consultants just keep getting more without actually having uh, many, many things to uh, to tout in terms of their accomplishments. Um, I guess one, one thing that I, I then that leads me to is um, I'd love both of your takes as to why does the State of the Union matter in the first place? And, and what, what opportunities does President Biden have to do in this State of the Union that perhaps he hasn't had the rest of the year? And, and why, again, why, why, why significant to Australians? And maybe I'll start with Victoria, then love to hear from you, David. Yeah, I think um, my knee-jerk reaction when it's you, when you ask, you know, does the State of the Union address actually matter? My knee-jerk reaction is just to say no, because it doesn't actually make a huge amount of difference. It's about, I suppose it's about giving Biden and the president an opportunity to address the nation and to lay out his priorities, to, I suppose, highlight the things that he considers important and to, you know, show his style of leadership, which is why I think in this instance, Biden is going to emphasize things like unity, like working together, like pushing America forward. They're things that he wants to associate with his presidency. He's always said that he wants to be a transformational leader. He sees himself as FDR and this infrastructure package is just another, you know, signal of that. This is an opportunity for Biden to get in front of the nation and to say what is important to him and to give himself and uh you know and his image a boost in the minds of the american people 
I suppose it's it's an opportunity where a lot of the world, or not, well, the world, yeah, but mainly Americans are actually watching. A lot of the time, I don't think Americans really care about politics. They care about things like the cost of a loaf of bread and the cost of eggs and the cost of living and, you know, crime in their neighbourhood. They care about politics that is proximate to them. And perhaps that's why Biden's messages haven't so much been getting through as well. I mean, in terms of, you know, a critical media landscape, sure, but also, you know, amongst uh, Democrat supporters as well, our polling shows that only 62% of Democrat voters thought that a second term for Biden would be reassuring so or, or good for the country. So in this instance, this is just an opportunity for Biden to get in front of the people and to say like, hi, I'm, I'm trustworthy and I'm doing things for you and you should be recognising the things that I'm trying to do. Um, but in terms of whether it's actually going to make a huge amount of difference, I don't know if it will. David, I'd love to hear from you. Well, we, we could talk about what opportunities Biden sees in it, but I'm wondering what opportunities Republicans see in this, because we really are living in the stunt era of uh, American politics. I remember the shock in 2009, I think it was, or maybe 2010, when a congressman from South Carolina, Joe Wilson, yelled, you lie at Obama uh, during his State of the Union speech. Now, that was considered an unacceptable violation of decorum then, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see something like that or worse uh, or being undertaken by more people um, during Biden's State of the Union speech now. The attention economy is really important. As I mentioned, for a lot of Republicans in Congress, it is basically everything. They don't have that many ambitions beyond getting as much attention as possible. So we might uh, possibly see a bit of disruption today. Hopefully we don't. Uh, I think it's always better when at least some norms are actually, uh, you know, are actually respected. And, um, but, you know, but I think that there is, there. I, I think that more and more people see those kinds of disruptions as an opportunity for them. Yeah, when, when I think back about the most memorable state instances of what I remember of State of the Unions in the past, in terms of speeches, I'd have to think about um, uh, President Bush's uh, Axis of Evil speech, and then maybe President Clinton's era of big government is over. But beyond that, most of my memories are, are like sort of like the memes we see afterwards, whether it be the, the short clips like you lie or whether it be Marco Rubio's uh, response to President Obama drinking a lot of water or rather be a Supreme Court justice shaking his head uh, when President Obama was, was talking about a Supreme Court decision he didn't like. Do you, what, what do you think um, for, for both of you will be the likely most memorable component of tonight? Do you think that there's any way that President Biden may be able to get some, some turn of phrase that will resonate with American voters? Oh, I fear. I fear what the memory will be because I feel like last year it was this very, he got through the whole speech and, you know, he managed to make it through to the very end and then he sort of ad-libbed this final line of like, go get him. And everyone was like, ooh, like <laughs> it was a bit ambiguous what that meant, whether that was go get Putin or like go get the legislative items that I had just listed. I'm not too sure. I'm hoping that it doesn't become too meme-worthy. I think another memorable one in my head was when Nancy Pelosi ripped up Trump's speech. So I'm actually interested to see what Kevin McCarthy will be doing behind Biden. Um, as he is speaking. And it, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the House Freedom Caucus, but I found this polling, which I just think is so fascinating. So the Pew Research Institute did a, uh, I guess, a 
account of the tweets in the House Republican Party. And the House Freedom Caucus members only make up 28% of all Republican House tweets, but they make up 81% of retweets, favourites and liked posts on Twitter from the Republican Party. So in terms of the attention economy, we're looking at only about 20 House members making up a huge amount of that media attention for the entire House um, Republican Party. And so I am a little bit nervous to see what some of the reaction will be um, to Biden's speech, especially, um, you know, considering some of the context around the balloon and some of the investigations that the Republican Party is hoping to launch. It'll be interesting to see how this eventuates on social media as much as anything else. Yeah, and I guess uh, from an Australian point of view, one thing that uh, might be different is, as you said, Nancy Pelosi is in the back. And I think one thing that I would flag is just um, the the sort of charade or charade of of standing, sitting, who claps, who doesn't. There's a famous uh, West Wing episode where uh, they, they look at who stands for what legislation that the fictional President Bartlett uh, mentions, and they notice that one senator doesn't stand, he does stand up for one piece of legislation, and they think, oh, maybe that's our opportunity to to work with him on this, and it ends up being that opportunity. Do you, do you see that, David? Like, do, do you think, are you going to be watching the sort of the body language? Is, is that probably the most telling uh, uh, insight from where people stand on things, or how, how do you watch the State of the Union? I've got to admit, usually I avoid watching it. Uh, the White House puts up the official transcript of the speech a few minutes before the speech actually begins. Uh, usually I read that, which is far quicker. Now, there are drawbacks to that because this is a piece of political uh, theatre. During the Trump presidency, the White House actually wouldn't post the uh, the official speech many of the years. Um, and but that was probably wise because Trump would deviate from uh, you know uh, from the script so much. Um, so I mean, I'm kind of you know I I am reluctant to direct my own attention to you know the the competitors of the attention economy, and I think a lot of Americans uh, feel the same way. This is not a particularly high rating. Um, event compared to uh, some of the other things that are out there. Um, so yeah, generally I read rather than watch the State of the Union and then I keep an eye on media afterwards to get other people's uh, ideas about what the highlight reactions were. Certainly, yeah, Pelosi tearing up um, uh, Trump's speech. One of the things I remember most about that was the, this faux outrage about that speech had the names of Americans who had died in combat on it. She's, uh, you know, she's disrespecting these uh, these servicemen. So, um, yeah, there's always going to be a lot of fodder for outrage. Great. Thank you. And um, lastly, just Victoria, how are you going to be watching uh, the State of the Union in a few hours? And and how, do you do you read it like David or or are you uh, are you there for the memes and you want to catch the whole thing? No, I will be there with popcorn um, and probably some kind of caffeinated stimulant. Um, but it's on at 1 p.m. for those in Sydney, uh, if you want to watch it, and often a live stream on YouTube. I, I love to see the theatre of it, so I'll be watching live. Great. Well, in the uh, interest of time, we'll close it up there. Thank you so much, uh, Victoria and David, for this really insightful hour we've had together. I think both of your insights um, the historical perspective from David, the amazing polling insights from Victoria have been fantastic. I also want to thank the team here supporting us at the U.S. Study Center, Janine Pinto, our events manager, 
And um, in addition to Mari, Gopika, and Suze, and everyone else who, who works with us here, this has been really insightful. And it's thanks to that, that support from them that we can bring it to you all. So I encourage everyone to watch the State of the Union, despite what David may say. Otherwise, you do actually gain something, or at the very least, watch our analysis, which will be uh, pretty far and wide, I expect, in, in the coming days to understand and to unpack what, what occurred today. Thank you so much, everyone, and I hope you have a wonderful morning.